Hey everybody, thanks again for tuning in to the Car Tech Garage, where Max and I try to keep cars interesting every week. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's what we're doing. We're actually today at the ADOS Center, or ADOS Calibration Center of Cincinnati. Today. Yeah, ADOS Calibration Center of Cincinnati. Cincinnati's premier ADOS Technology Center. Yeah, absolutely. We're actually stepping foot here in the shop right now um, to give you guys this podcast because we're, we're checking out the place and should have some more content coming soon here as well. Yes, indeed. And uh, the lack of tables has caused us to improvise. Hence why we're using the lift. <laughs> <laughs> but it's working out very well. Yeah, I think you know maybe more podcasts should be done on a lift. Yeah, and it even goes very well with your shirt you have on too. I, obviously, you might be able to see it on the camera. I don't know if you can show him, but his shirt says, do you even lift? And it looks like a, a Porsche on a lift. Yeah, except there's not a Porsche on the lift this week. But can't say anything else. Let's buckle up and take a ride through this week in automotive history. Absolutely. Let's go. I know today on the radio show you had quite a few good ones, so I'm sure you're yeah. going to bring some of those. We didn't have enough time, though. We got shortcut. I didn't we get to had get a lot of callers. It was, it was an exciting day. Yeah, I didn't even get to talk about Jim Clark. <laughs> like people wanted advice on their cars, and I'm like, all right, come on, guys, yeah. let's hurry it up. So that's why we Just do kidding, the podcast. You know, <laughs> if we ever miss anything on the radio station, you know, obviously you guys can listen in online if you're not from the Cincinnati area. But this is why we do the podcast as well. So anything that we miss from the radio station, we make sure to bring to you guys here on the podcast. So thanks for checking us out. All right, April fourth, nineteen eighty-two. Thirty-nine years ago. Mr. Nicky Lauda won the U.S. Grand Prix West. That was in Long Beach. Um, and this year he was driving McLaren MP4-1. So like the first generation, I guess, you know, second generation technically of the McLaren MP4 race car. Mm -hmm. Awesome, awesome car. But this was his 18th victory in his career and uh, his actual first with McLaren. Um, of course, he didn't win the championship that year, but he did win with McLaren in 1984 when he came back. But of course, this was... Actually, after he came back from retirement, he retired for a few years after two seasons with Brabham. Of course, he'd already won two championships prior to that with Ferrari. And, you know, the three-time world champ just had to come back and prove that he could do it one more time. Well, of course, you know, once you once you get in the race and that mentality of racing and, and winning championships, you know, it, it, it. I'm sure for these guys, I don't know it firsthand, but just like you would see in the sports world, of, you know, winning a, you know, NBA tournament or NCAA tournament is what I meant. Um, or, you know, winning the Super Bowl for the NFL. Once you do it once, you know, you just kind of get a, a taste of that and you want more of it. I know. It's kind of like, I feel like Michael Hamilton, or sorry, Michael Hamilton. Oh, wow. That was a mess up. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're off today. <laughs> anyway, the point being, um, it's almost kind of like Lewis Hamilton, you know, wins just time and time and time again. He's like the Tom Brady of F1 racing. I saw a perfect comparison. I just would agree. Just getting old. 100%. 100%. I'm a Hamilton fan, though, dude. I mean, the guy can drive. And he's, he, he, you know, I've never met him personally, but he really seems to be a good dude. So I got to give him that, too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I can yeah. attest to the same. Let's go ahead and move forward. April 5th, 1963, 58 years ago, Mr. Craig Breedlove was the first man to break 400 miles per hour on land. 400? 400. That's impressive. Yeah, 407.447 miles an hour. Um, now, the record was not accepted by the FIA because they didn't consider it a car. Really? Yeah. Well, he it kind of, I guess, technically it's a car, but it, um, its engine did not power the wheels because it was a jet engine. Okay. I can see the gray area there. Yep, and it bit. only had three wheels, <laughs> not four. So they they classified this 
you know, 30 some foot monster as a motorcycle with a sidecar. Oh, I guess is that how they did their classification? Because I know nowadays that would be considered, you know, a three wheeled motorcycle or a trike. So I guess at that time that was the stipulation that it, since it had three wheels, still, yeah. it was a motorcycle. That's that's interesting. I mean, nineteen sixty three, I guess, but still, I mean, somebody was drinking. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that thing doesn't have four wheels. Yep, not a car. I think they were just <laughs> I think they were just sour. They were just sour. Oh, really? They're like, man, this American guy comes in, straps a rocket to a car. Why don't we think of that? They did. Opel Fritz von Opel was one of the first pe- per- people to strap rockets to things. He had these these projects called the RAKs, you know, racks, mm-hmm. and he had like four of them. Um, and he eventually stopped putting a rocket on on like cars. He basically made these rocket powered rail vehicles, and he was like going after a bunch of land speed records with those. Anyways, super cool stuff. Just That's at cool. what point do you chase something of that speed? Like I love speed. I love going fast. I've I've gone very fast in my lifetime thus far, but. At what point is it too much? You know, I know that's something you would never associate with speed, but at what point are you now pushing the limits that you shouldn't be pushing? I think once you reach the point where you're completely counteracting the rotation of the earth, you've gone fast enough. <laughs> okay, fair enough. That's valid. That's what, about 1,000 miles an hour? So I don't know. It's about 1,000 miles an hour. <laughs> you can just trust me on this one. Okay, okay. <laughs> April 6, 1939, 82 years ago, was the day that Rudolf Caricola and Herman Lang drove the Mercedes W165. Now, the W165 was a Grand Prix car and a very interesting one at that because it was designed, obviously, in 1939. And then World War II happened. Of course. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of racing got canceled. So it only competed in one race, the 1939 Tripoli Grand Prix. And, of course, it it won, dominated it. Uh, They got first and second, Lang and then Caracola. So two in a row. And... It ended up racing or trying to race again. It ended up not actually racing again, but it tried to race again. Mm-hmm. In 1946, um, the uh, Mercedes team got invited by, tr- uh, not Troy, but Tony Holman. Tony Holman owned the Indianapolis Motor Speedway at that time. So he invited these guys to come and race their new 165 race car because it only ran in one race. And the 1946 Indy 500 was the first post-war Indy 500. Mm-hmm. Um so, unfortunately, the car never ended up making it because um, Switzerland did not allow it out of customs. Of course. So, it never got to come and compete here. Um, but it had a 1.5-liter supercharged V8, about 250 horsepower or so. But, I mean, one and a half liters. You know, in 1939, that much power from the same amount of combustion space as – or less – sorry, less combustion space than, like, a half gallon of milk. It's insane. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame it never made it to the 500. The winning car that year was a Maserati 8C. Again, very fast car, really, really awesome for the time. Um, But I think the Merc very well could have taken it. It could have. No question. It looks awesome. It looks awesome. The W165. We'll have to, like, put some video clips in here and, like, show the pictures or something. We're still learning, everybody. Yeah, we're learning here. (laughs) All right, April 7th, 1968. Um, Solemn, but definitely worth mentioning. Jim Clark. One of the greatest Grand Prix racers of all time passed away in a very tragic Formula 2 accident um, at a race in Hockenheim. He was just 32 years old. Now, Clark, he was widely regarded as like one of the most naturally gifted Formula 1 drivers of all time. Um, he competed his entire Formula 1 career with with Lotus and uh, and Colin Chapman oh, okay. the whole time. So, I mean, he was driving some really awesome cars at, at the point in time. He won two world championships, uh, 63 and 65 um, I mean, just a, a fantastic driver. And um, 
when he died, a couple of records, he had actually won more Grand Prix races and achieved more pole positions. Uh, 25 races won, 33 pole positions um, than any other driver. And that was when he was just 32. That's impressive, you know, yeah, for I mean, that that early on in his lifetime. Exactly. Um, I mean, crazy, crazy. And so the Times um, actually, tr- you know, ranked a lot of F1 drivers. Um, and what they basically came to the conclusion at is they, like, rated him at the very top of the list. Um, you know, he won his first one uh, in 1963 driving a Lotus 25. Um, now, the cool part about this is in 63, he won seven out of ten races. Seven out of ten. And that record of seven races won in a season wouldn't be equaled until Elaine Prost ended up getting it, and then it wouldn't be uh, beaten until Ayrton Senna came and got eight races in a season. But you have to account the win race, or sorry, the win rate, like the percentage. Mm -hmm. So he won seven out of 10 races in 1963. Um, Elaine Prost, he uh, won... Seven out of, I think, 14, what was it? Uh, no, 16, sorry. Um, okay. Yeah, so both there, there were 16 races um, when Prost and Senna both got it. So he had a 43-something percent percentage. Um, Versus of, of, yeah. 70. Exactly. Okay. So, I mean, okay. and even Senna's was only a 50% win ratio, and he had a 70% win ratio. That's just. So it, it's dominant, and yeah. nobody's come quite close to that. Um, I mean, it, it's just absolutely incredible. So in 1963, he competed in the Indy 500 for the first time. He finished second um, behind Parnelli Jones. But he, mm-hmm. I mean, his first time at the 500, you know, he wasn't really a, a, an oval track racer, you know? Yeah. It was pretty incredible that he was able to adopt that discipline and then really be competitive. He actually led 25 of those laps. So, I mean, he was in, he was in, in first for a little while. Um, so he made amends in 1965, when he won the Indianapolis 500, driving a Lotus 38, um, he actually missed the Monaco Grand Prix in order to compete at Indianapolis. But the cool part was he ended up making history because when he won that, it was the first time a mid-engine car had won at the Brickyard. That's pretty impressive. Yes, indeed. And the other cool part is even though he missed the Monaco Grand Prix that year, he still won enough races to win the F1 Drivers' Championship. So he's the only man to date to uh, simultaneously hold... The Indy 500 win for the year and the F1 championship for the year. Yeah, that's pretty. <laughs> like you know, you can't beat that. That doesn't happen anymore at all. Ever. No, I mean it's just like he was absolutely dominant. And, and there's tons of drivers that'll tell you that they think he is the most naturally gifted driver in a race car. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've got all my favorites and everything. Jim Clark's obviously up there, um, and, and there was no doubt that you know he's certainly, in my opinion, top three natural talent. Hundred percent, and, and maybe the best. Um, in fact, so Chris Amon, who's another F one driver, he he was quoted saying about uh, Jim Clark, "If it could happen to him, what chance do the rest of us have?" Like, <laughs> yeah, he's an impressive man. You know, those chances and the likelihood, if you just look at the probability of it, mm-hmm. you know, most likely not going to happen. That's the thing, you know. Most young men, I mean, you know, we go through life thinking that we're invincible, or at least, you know, especially in terms of our competitive aspect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whenever we think about that, you know, we, we think ourselves to put competition and winning at all costs. And that way, you know, a lot of times we throw safety out the window and obviously it's not the best of things to do, but even somebody who was that naturally gifted still got himself into some trouble. 
And that's what happens, you know, when you're pushing limitations and winning championships and, and trying to go through this, you know, racing's obviously a dangerous sport. You know, I don't really have to say that for people to understand that, but, you know, when you just look at how far racing's come or, you know, just the, the fatalities and the, the scariness of it, you know, I think that's also a large part of why some guys do it because, you know, it's that risk it's exciting. and it's feeling alive and doing it. And that's just what's impressive. And I'm glad that we get to talk to guys about guys like Jim Clark, because yeah. obviously he set a legacy and obviously, and I'm sure there's some young driver out there that has watched every single one of his races or, or read the stats on it. Mm-hmm. Crazy. It is. It really is. But that's why we love talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just glad that people just keep racing. And that's one thing. I, I feel like humans will just never stop competing. I know they won't. And cars are just one of those things. It's, you know, you give somebody snowboard skis, their own feet, they're going to compete. It is what it yeah. is. Yeah. I mean, that's just that competitive aspect is always going to be there. And leading into that competitive aspect and the need to go and compete, this is a pretty funny story. Our next topic up, April 8th in 1951, 70 years ago, um, the NASCAR Grand National event on the U.S. West Coast, Marshall Teague actually won it, driving a Hudson Hornet because the Hornets were dominant in the early to mid-50s, you know, before V8 started taking over. Um, but their step-down design, and for anybody who remembers what the Hudson Hornet was, was just like, it was a whole game-changer in terms of racing, especially on these large automobiles. Um, so, you know, he led all 200 laps in this Hudson Hornet. But the really fun story about this was that there, there was this guy named Frank Monday, or sorry, Frank Mundy. Um, and the, the coolest part about Frank Mundy was his competitive edge got the best of him. He didn't have a car to drive. So he rented one. What? He rented a car. He literally drove a rental car to this race, got 11th place, won $25 which was enough to pay for the rental car and the gas. Oh, and man. Then, <laughs> and then um, he didn't wreck it or anything, but the tires were smoked. Of course. So um, I guess he got caught returning the rental car after hours because he didn't want the the like rental attendant to see the bald tires. That's awesome. Man, I've been doing it all wrong all these times. You know, I've been thinking I need to save up for a race car and buy something cool. <laughs> I could just go, you know, to a rental agency, apparently. Yeah. I know just, it, it just would not work that way. Run to Enterprise, <laughs> pick up a Versa. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'll run send it. it around. We can be, you know, like Top Gear. What is it? Star in the reasonably priced car. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that would be cool. I, I could get behind that. <laughs> you have to spend under now, $100. Okay, now you got my wheels turning. I'm like, hmm. All right. We have a lot of bad what, ideas. What kind of spec race could we get into? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Moving ahead again. April 9th, 2000. Um, this was the year that, uh, Michael Schumacher won, uh, the Grand Prix de Mola again. Um, but he actually came second on pole behind Mika Hakkinen. Um, now he ended up coming around during the race, obviously, uh, he ended up winning and then Mika got second. And then this guy named David Coulthard got third. Now, the other thing does any, uh, some of you guys may remember, um, the race in 98 when Schumacher and Coulthard almost fought. So what happened was Schumacher was like, right behind David and David slammed on the brakes. Like he basically, it looked like he brake checked him allegedly, allegedly on track. Of course, that's a big no, no in track racing. Um, and Schumacher basically tried to divert out, but his right front wheel got blown off. And, um, he drove with three wheels into the pits, got out and like chased this guy down. (laughs) Like, like it was almost lights out and away we go in the pits. That's all I got to say. Oh, that's funny. All right, April 10th, 1807. 
1807. Oh, wow. We're going way back Real in Real far history. back, 214 years ago. So this um, guy named Isaac de Rivaz, or de Rivaz. Anyway, not Newton. Isaac, um, he was Swiss, and this is the day that he drove his carriage powered by an internal combustion engine. I look deep in the annals of the internet for this stuff. <laughs> I just like to think of, you know, at that time you know, how crazy people probably thought he was like, Hey, I'm not going to use a horse, but I'm going to get this carriage to move. I'm sure that was like an insane thought to everybody around. I'm like, really? this guy's losing his mind. Yeah, He's going to make a, a carriage move without a horse. Okay. They were thinking they need to lead him, like lead him to some water. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's a drink. <laughs> Obviously losing his mind, but it was, uh, the carriage was made of wood, but anyway, it wasn't actually close to being useful. Um, Although it does take the, the claim of being the first vehicle powered by an internal combustion engine, and it's a little bit speculative on this part, but uh, many say it's the first engine of its kind at all. So oh. the engine, it wasn't like a typical combustion uh, compression engine, but it was an internal combustion engine. It didn't actually have a compression stroke. Yeah. So he, was it like a two-stroke engine? Not or quite. He no? basically just had, a, it didn't have a crankshaft or a rod. It, util, it utilized a plunger. And he um, basically pumped in hydrogen oxygen, and it had a manual spark igniter, and it would just pump it down. That's interesting. Yeah, I've, I've looked up like some weird designs yeah. of it. It like it 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 worked. I'm gonna have to just look not into really that. well. Um, but the the important part is that it's an important ancestor of the modern internal combustion engine. Yeah. A lot of people thought that like it wasn't until the 1850s, 1860s when people even thought of this stuff, and it wasn't until the 1880s, 1890s that people started adapting them to automobiles. But this was 1807. And that's where, you know, you get a lot of gray area of, okay, who created the first, you know, gas-powered car? Who created, you know, the first automobile or first engine? You know, there's a lot of gray area with it. And it's kind of depending on where you grew up and where you lived is who the first was. And then now looking back at history, you can kind of say who was maybe the first, but it's still kind of all. There's so many people that, that, that were great inventors that all kind of collectively donated their little bits and pieces to turn it into what it is. And that way, you know, people like Nicholas Otto and, and George Brayton could make something that was really usable. Mm -hmm. um, and hey, now we got cars. Yeah. That's awesome. They're great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So much so that we spend all Saturday, all day Saturday talking about That's it. That's what I mean. We're here right now. It's one o'clock and <laughs> yeah, we're still talking about cars. So I think we're all set. Anyway, that's what I've got for this week <laughs> in automotive history. Thank you so much, everybody who is taking the Absolutely, time to yeah. listen. Um, you know, this is what we do it for. So yeah. thank you guys. And make sure to, you know, download our podcast, you know, subscribe to it so you can get our newest weekly episode. We are now starting to produce our podcast or release our podcast, should I say, every Wednesday. Um, for you guys and we're going to do a week in automotive history every single week um, and then here and there we're going to throw in some extra you know content extra topics that we're going to talk about and yeah. as Wesley said there's not a Porsche on this lift but we'll see we, what happens we might be able to do something about that for yeah. you guys so stay tuned this podcast has been brought to you by Almer's Auto Care in Cincinnati Ohio providing service beyond compare since 1936